Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Lord, would you please lift the veil that separates our understanding from a true understanding of you. Please lift the veil of our hearts where they are cool and disengaged from you, Lord. Would you set them ablaze? Mm -hmm. Lord, lift the veil that would cause us to hear about these wondrous mysteries in the book of Revelation and not be engaged in worship. They help us to see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning, Incarnation. Good morning. Well, this morning, as you uh, have heard, I'm going to be preaching out of Revelation 7. So this will be the second time that you've heard one of your Anglican priests preach out of Revelation in the last month. <laughs> and this one comes straight out of the lectionary. So I don't, I don't want to hear any of this Anglicans avoid the book of Revelation stuff, okay? Um, but all joking aside, this... Um, uh, it's true that the book of Revelation can be kind of intimidating for Christians to read and even for pastors to preach on because Revelation, and notice it's not plural. There's no S at the end. Can you say Revelation? Revelation. The book of Revelation. It's a book rich with colorful, prophetic, and often highly symbolic in imagery. And that can be intimidating to interpret. So on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, I think it's also true that once we get past our fears and really dig into it, it's fair to say that much of the imagery, not all, but much of the imagery is pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. At least a good study Bible will help you along. Mm -hmm. For example, Jesus is commonly portrayed as a lamb. And the reason for this should be somewhat obvious, right? It's a connection with this idea of the pure, sinless, the, the pure, spotless Lamb of God in the Old Testament that sacrificed for the sins of the people. So Jesus represents the ultimate sacrifice, right? And the devil in the book of Revelation is often referred to as the dragon or that ancient serpent, which of course is a, uh, is a um, reference to Satan and his temptation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. So sometimes people, my neighbors or friends will ask me, do you believe that the Bible should be taken literally? And I'll answer, I try to read the Bible on its own terms. So it depends on what part of the Bible you're talking about and how God intends it to be read. Amen? C.S. Lewis talks about that the Bible is, is really a, a complicated book. It's, it's an adult book. And so we can't come to it reading it like children. There are parts that you can understand as children. But when we, when we grow up, we set these childish ways aside and we try to read the Bible with a little bit of nuance. Amen? So, for example, if you're asking whether I believe Jesus literally rose from the dead in bodily form, the answer is yes. Even though it's surprising, even though it's miraculous, this is clearly affirmed by the Bible as literal historical truth. There's many different indications that the text gives to let us know that this is not just a symbolism. This is something that really happened. But if you're asking me whether I believe that the heavenly Jesus has somehow been transformed into a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, <laughs> then I would say that you are confusing symbolic truth and literal truth. However, not everything that happens in the book of Revelation is meant to be interpreted symbolically. Sometimes it's literal. 
So, for example, in this passage, it talks about how in heaven they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. And let, that lets us know there are not going to be any starving people any longer in the new creation. Amen? Amen. That's not literal. That's, I mean, that, that's not symbolic. That's literal. Okay, so let's turn together to Revelation 7, um, verses 9 through 17. It's on page 1032 of your pew Bible. And we'll unpack it together. And in this chapter, the veil is lifted between heaven and earth. And we're given a glimpse into eternity, into the very throne room of God. And John sees, as he looks into heaven, a whole cast of characters. Verse 11 mentions angels. There are lots of angels in the book of Revelation. And then we have the elders, also called the 24 elders in chapter 4 and 5, which most interpreters see as a reference to the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. So the 24 elders. And then we have the four living creatures who are these kind of strange, mysterious, exalted, heavenly creatures. Scripture first introduced them 600 years earlier in the vision of the prophet Ezekiel. But in Revelation, we get the extra detail that they have six wings, just like the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. So between the angels and the elders and the four living creatures, this is quite a glorious company that we're beholding in this text. But the text is also clear that they're nothing compared to heaven's most glorious inhabitant. Amen? Verse 11 and 12 says, And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces. They were undone. They were a puddle in the presence of their God and King. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And this sevenfold eruption of praise matches the seven seals of the scroll and the seven blasts of the trumpet described in the surrounding chapters. So the image that we're seeing communicates that in heaven, even the glorious beings, even the most glorious beings are undone in the presence of the King of Kings. Amen? Amen. I know um, for many families... Uh, it's become a tradition to go and see Handel's Messiah every Christmas season. You guys know this, um, the very famous chorus, Alleluia, Alleluia. And of course, famously, um, there's a tradition that at that point in Handel's Messiah, everybody in the audience stands up and remains standing for a while. Now, uh, tradition has it that where that started was when this was first performed in London in 1743, King George II shocked the crowd because when it came to that part, Alleluia, King of Kings, forever and ever, Alleluia. When it, when it came to that part, um, King George stood up and everybody's like looking over at the king like, what's going on? And it was custom in England that when the king stood up, everybody else had to stand up. So after a moment, everybody else stood up and remained standing. And the idea was that it was tradition in their culture that everyone stands in the presence of the king. But the king stands in the presence of the king of kings. Amen? So... 
Something tells me that if King George was in this scene in Revelation 7, he wouldn't be standing. <laughs> He'd be on his face with the four living creatures and the angels and the 24 elders. But besides this idea of kings and angels and exalted saints, one of the most encouraging things in this passage, as you get this glimpse into heaven, one of the most encouraging things for garden variety Christians such as us is that we see people there, like ordinary everyday people. And I think sometimes in our despair with all the evil in the world and the evil that we see in our own hearts, we might be led to ask, like, will anybody make it to heaven? Is it just going to be the Lord up there by himself? Could anyone hope to dwell in the presence of the great king and judge, perfect in holiness? Amen? Perfect in justice. And the answer given in this prophetic vision is yes. There will be lots of people, scores of people. This vision makes it clear there will be great throngs that nobody can number. John says in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. And of course, um, the Lord knows the number. It's all written in His book, but from a human perspective, as He's looking on this crowd, this multitude is so vast they're beyond all human reckoning. This is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Father Abraham. God had told Abraham that he would make him the father of a multitude of nations. That's what he says in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 15, if you remember, the Lord brings Abraham outside. It's, it's when he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. He brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Now, I bet you that some of you guys have tried to count the stars before when you're kids. But if you get out into the countryside and away from the city lights, you realize this is an impossible task. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So just as it is with Abraham, the man of faith, so it is with all who are counted righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. The multitude in Revelation 7 are the spiritual progeny of Father Abraham. So in the New Testament, God's people, regardless of ethnicity, are referred to as the circumcision or as Abraham's children by faith. Paul refers to them as the Israel of God. So they're all, we're all spiritual descendants of Abraham. He is the father of a multitude of nations. But what else can we say about these people who made it to heaven? Or to put it more precisely, who made it to the new heavens and the new earth. Who are they and how did they get there? And I think these are crucial questions for anybody who wants to be in heaven when we die. right? Anybody who wants to spend eternity with God rather than eternity separated from God with the dragon and his disobedient angels. None of us wants that. And there are three things that this vision communicates about these heavenly saints. And the first thing to note is that the countless worshipers are from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So the image is of a multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic people of God. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's an image of unity in diversity. You see that? Diversity in that every ethnos, every ethnic group on the earth is present. And this, of course, is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Remember when Jesus sent out his apostles? He says, 
That he wants them to make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's bringing them into unity, but he wants people from all nations. And in this passage, it's, it's almost like every ethnic group is sort of bringing before the Lord the cream of their culture. Right? It's like they're the best of their music, the best of their art, the best of their aspirations, and they're laying it before the Lord as part of their worship, before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, some will ask, well, I thought things like race and culture don't matter in eternity. And in one sense, that's true. Paul said that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female. But in saying this clearly, as we see in the rest of the New Testament, he's not abolishing ethnicity as a distinction, just as he's not abolishing gender as a distinction. Paul, throughout the rest of the New Testament, considers himself to be a Jewish man, right? But what he was saying was that in Christ, salvation and the opportunity to be a child of God is equally available to all, regardless of these lesser distinctions. And he was saying that our identity in Christ is more fundamental than our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status or our gender. We are made one. We are unified because we share the same father. We have the same daddy. We have the same savior. And we have one king. I have a friend named Esau McCauley who's a black New Testament professor in Chicago. And Esau gets a lot of invitations to um, come and speak on racial reconciliation in the Bible. And oftentimes these invitations are to come and speak on a very famous text that has to do with that, which is Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul talks about how the cross of Jesus tears down the dividing wall of hostility that stood between Jew and Gentile. And so it's used as this great master text to talk about racial reconciliation. Well, he says, um, I will come, but I will not start with Ephesians chapter 2, if you don't mind. He's like, if you want me to come and talk about racial reconciliation, I want to start with Genesis chapter 1. Where we're all created in the image of God and we all have the same daddy. Right? That's where a message of racial reconciliation starts. But I, I would also argue that a good place to start would actually be Revelation chapter 7. So not just starting from the beginning of the story and working forward, because in the beginning we see God's perfect will before it's corrupted by sin, right? But in the end, at the consummation of God's kingdom, we see God's perfect will redeemed, right? So we could start there and work our way backwards and say, it looks like it's God's will for his church to be multi-ethnic. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way that that applies to issues of hunger, we know that God wants us to pray against hunger and preventable malnutrition in this world because in the kingdom of God, there will be no more hunger, right? So in the same way, in the kingdom of God, God's people of every ethnicity and culture will be reconciled. So we should be praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We shouldn't just be resigned to the fact that Sunday at 10 a.m. is the most segregated day of the week. That shouldn't be the case anymore. We press into these things. We work intentionally. We pray intentionally for these things because God has purchased for himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So the church of heaven is a countless multitude full of people of every ethnicity and culture. And that's the first thing we notice. But there are two more things about this multitude that are central to this apocalyptic vision. In verse 13, one of the elders asked John a rhetorical question. He says, who are these clothed in white robes 
And from, from where have they come? And uh, John says to him in verse 14, Sir, you know. In other words, why are you asking me? <laughs> and he says to John, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Mm -hmm. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there are actually two crucial points here. One is about perseverance and the other is about being washed. But let's actually look at them in reverse. Because I think the most important identity marker for the church in heaven is that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's what's repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. That's the essence of the gospel. And again, I think it's important that we uh, not uh, um, get literal and symbolic language confused. I would not advise you, if you're washing white clothes, to wash them in lamb's blood. That's not what's going on here. What it's referring to, of course, is the full forgiveness mm -hmm. and moral spotlessness that's on offer to all who would put their faith in Christ and in the cross of Christ. There was a method of evangelism commonly used a few decades back called evangelism explosion. Wonderful name. So evangelism explosion would start with this question. If you were to die today, are you 100% certain that you would go to heaven? And that's actually a pretty important question for people to think about. And then uh, if they said yes, you would ask him why. Why, um, you know, why would God let you into heaven? And a very common answer that people would give is, um, well, because I'm a good person. Right? And some of us may have given that answer before. You know, I, I think I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm probably better than the next guy. <laughs> but we need to be very careful when we're thinking about what gets us in what makes us a part of this multitude how do we dwell with a completely holy completely just god for all eternity when we're all sinners when we've all fallen short of the glory of god and this passage is telling us plainly this because i'm a good person answer is not rooted in scripture According to Revelation 7, those who have made it into heaven, who have been welcomed into God's presence, are not the people who, as they pass through this life, sort of kept their robes consistently, you know, at least sufficiently unstained from everything they've come into contact with. Those who have made it into heaven have done so because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Yeah. Because on the basis of our own good deeds, none of us, none of us will get into heaven because we're a good person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what happened in the fall. That's what the New Testament proclaims. Read the book of Romans again if you don't believe me. Read the book of Galatians again if you don't believe me. Read everything that Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John if you don't believe me. All of us have sinned and fallen short of, short of the glory of God. We've all soiled our garments, guys. We can't dwell in the presence of God with our garments as they currently are. Are you kidding me? But we don't need to despair because the good news, say the good news. Good news. Is that th a thorough and sufficient washing has been made universally available through the blood of the Lamb of God. Trusting in Jesus in his cross that he died in our place cleanses us from all guilt 
And it begins this process of moral transformation in us from the inside out that leads us on in, into eternity. So if you want to know how to be numbered among this great multitude, this is the starting place. Repent of your sins and receive the forgiveness that is offered you through Jesus. And if you want to know why God should let you into his perfect heaven, if God said, why should I let you in? Right? Tell him your robes have been made spotless by the blood of the lamb. Because that's the only sufficient answer. No one will be able to give another answer. I still remember sharing the gospel with a family member of mine on their deathbed. And I remember um, they felt like they couldn't be reconciled to God because their sin were too great. Their sin was too great. I know that a lot of us feel like, I'm a good person. God will probably let me in. This person was like, I know that my sin is too great. And they especially were feeling very guilty about ways that they had sinned against their spouse. And um, I remember I asked them, um, do you remember um, the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus? There were two thieves. And they said, yeah, yeah, I remember that story. They didn't really spend much time in church or whatever. And I said, do you remember that the thief said to the other thief who was making fun of Jesus, the one thief said, um, don't you fear God? We are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So the thief, did the thief believe that he was justly being killed? Did the thief believe that he was justly being judged? Yes. But I said, but then he looked at Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, did that man get into heaven because he had kept his robes unstained in this life? Did that man get into heaven because he was a good person? No, he got into heaven because in the 11th hour, and we're not all given that opportunity like my, like my family member on his deathbed, but in the 11th hour, he came to his senses and came to the Lamb of God to have his robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. And I remember my family member I told him just, just two things. You, you can be that guy. I said, there's just two things. You don't know how much longer you have. You don't know if you have hours or days or weeks. Who knows? You might end up having years. But there's two things. Number one, repent. That means turn from being your own God, from following your own way. And you're not going to do it perfectly, but you're going to turn to God and you're going to say, help me. I want you to be my king the rest of my life. Right? However, however much longer I have, I want you to be my king the rest of my life. And also say, and wash me. Cleanse me through what you did for me on the cross. Repent and believe the good news. And I said, will you do that? Uh, and, and he said, yeah. I said, will, will you pray? I prayed with him, but I said, I want you to talk to God about that yourself. Um, when I leave, I want you to talk to God about that yourself in your bed at night. And he said that he would. You know, we'll see. I mean, God knows. God's the judge. I'm not the judge. But I, I, I have hope that I'm going to see this person in heaven. Because this is how we get in. By washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, not by living a morally stainless life. All of us have already blown that one. <laughs> so if we want to be in the presence of the completely holy one, if we want to be in perfect heaven without ruining the perfection of heaven, we need a cleansing. We need a washing. And that's what Jesus offers. But there's another crucial identifier and this one is actually listed first in verse 14. And that is that the people of God are the ones who persevere. The people of God in heaven persevere. The multitudes in heaven 
are the people who have persevered through all kinds of trials and temptations in earthly life and somehow kept the faith. In the words of the elder, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now it's true that this word tribulation, which in Greek is flipsis, which is kind of fun to say, flipsis. It's sometimes used to describe the woes that will come upon the world in the very last days before Jesus' second coming. But here in Revelation 7, I think because it's referring to God's people as a whole, I take tribulation to mean the trials and temptations that are common to all Christians. And this is one of the most common usages of the word tribulation in the New Testament. For example, when Jesus is at the Last Supper with his disciples, he says to them in John 16, 33, In this world you will have tribulation. Again, flipsis. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He promises that to his apostles, to all that would follow. Or again, in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22, right after Paul is stoned in Lystra, he and Barnabas go go about encouraging the churches, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, facing trials and tribulations in this life should not be the expectation only of Christians who are living in the last days. It's the expectation of all Christians. It's a consistent message throughout the New Testament. And I find it to be like an odd reality that sometimes the more that we make about the tribulations on the last day, the more we sort of deny the fact that suffering is actually a part of normal Christian life. Sometimes those two things go together. And this may be a tough pill to swallow, guys, but it's really important that we do because otherwise we're going to be unprepared. And we're not going to persevere. So sometimes Christians, you know, as we, we look at suffering like, hey, is something broken? Right? Is, is life supposed to be this hard? And the answer is, yes, <laughs> the world is broken. And through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But also take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. And as I said in our gospel reading, It's not so much that we cling to God with all our might, but nobody, Jesus says, nobody can snatch you from my hand. No one is stronger than the Father, and no one can snatch you from His hand. One of the most inspiring things about being a pastor is witnessing on a daily basis the perseverance of God's people through great suffering. Oftentimes far beyond anything that I've faced. So through cancer, and untimely deaths, through rebellious teenagers and special needs children, through racism and injustice and even hunger. I've met saints that have persevered through all these things. Hmm. And sometimes John and I can't understand what's actually keeping people going. Mm -hmm. It's like they're rocky and it's the last round. It's like, man, somebody's got to throw in the towel or something. But just they keep going. God, by His grace working within them, and they keep persevering, and they keep putting their faith in Christ, and they keep coming back to them as broken as they are, as weak as they feel, as much as they feel like things are hanging by a thread, they come back to Him. We want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, in your tribulation to keep going. Yours is the kingdom of God. A few months ago, I was on retreat 
at a monastery in Georgia, and I was reading through 1 Peter. And it had been a while since I'd read through 1 Peter. And talk about tough medicine. It's all about the call for Christians to persevere through hardship with faith in godliness, knowing that eternity awaits. And so I was reading through 1 Peter, and I was walking around this property, and I was reading, and I stopped to sit on this bench, and I finished reading the epistle, and I was just talking to the Lord, and I'm like, Lord, help me to understand this, and help me to understand it, like how I'm supposed to you know, understand this truth in light of your church and how we're supposed to live in this right now. I'm just mm -hmm. praying and reading. And, and I remember I got up and then I looked and I saw that there was this inscription on the bench that I was sitting on and somebody had died and there was a quotation and it said, um, suffering is temporary, quitting is forever. And uh, I was like, what? I, I was sitting on that inscription this whole time reading First Peter. It just sounded like such a great summary of that message. Suffering is temporary, but quitting is forever. We don't want to quit. We want to keep going. We want to be among the saints who have made it through the great tribulation. Amen? Amen. And have kept the faith and are welcomed by God to dwell with him for all eternity and find our rest from the Lamb of God who is also our shepherd. So we began this morning by talking about the symbolic truth in the book of Revelation and how in chapter 7 the veil is peeled back and we see this picture, the great throne room of God. And we notice the cast of glorious characters, the angels and the 24 elders and the four living creatures all lying prostrate before the throne of God. And we notice this encouraging multitude, more numerous than any human can count. And how God's heavenly church was marked by three things. By their unity and diversity. So there are people of every tribe and tongue and nation. By their trust in the sacrificial death of Christ. Their robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. And by their perseverance. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. We might summarize by saying God's people in heaven have been washed and tried. Amen. Mm -hmm. So I want to close by reading out this vision of what we get to enter into when we've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. What we get to enter into when we make it through the tribulation. Verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. It's a priestly image. We're the royal priesthood of God. Amen. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst. There's going to be feasts, though. We get that image, too. <laughs> but you will not hunger anymore. Neither shall you thirst. The, shun, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They'll be intimately loved in a personal way by God. We know what it's like, if, if you put your faith in Christ, you know what it's like to have the consolation of his Holy Spirit, to have the consolation of the Father's love shed abroad in your heart. But could you imagine what it's like to be loved in this kind of personal, face-to-face -face way? God wiping every tear from our eye. Amen. Anything we face, all your tribulations, I don't know what they are, but there's a day of rest coming for you if you trust in Christ. 
I don't know about you, but I want to be there. I want to see it for myself. Mm -hmm. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Amen.